Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, Pastor. Yeah, I love, actually, I didn't mean for you to move quite yet. I want you to put up, real quick, put up the last phrase, or the, the last uh, thing of the last song that we were just singing, the end of uh, the church, that, that song, the church. I want you to pay attention to what we just sang together, okay? We will go, we're declaring this as a group. When we were singing this before the Lord, we were giving Him our full heart and we were singing this out. And not just us, but everybody who sings this song. This is the declaration. We will go where you tell us to go. We will speak out your very word. We will move when you tell us to move. Why? Because we are yours. Okay, thank you. You can put it back on the other now. So often we worship and we treat things in a manner much lighter than the way God receives it. See, when we declare those words, he holds us accountable to those words. And, and the church, when, when the church sings that word... And, and then goes off and really acts in a way where they literally take, and I'm not talking about us, but taking the, the reins that they've given over to the Lord, they take them back and move throughout the week or move throughout the, the life of that church in, in doing things the way that they could control, that produces a problem. And in reality, that's what's been produced in the church over de- decades. Right? I, I was talking with a young man at the beginning of this week, and he doesn't go here, uh, somebody else that I know, and, and um, he, he made a very interesting comment to me, and in, in rebuttal to some things that I had said, um, he, he said, well, well, you know, God would not say anything negative in a prophetic word, certainly not about death, because we're under a new covenant. We're under a covenant of grace. We're under a covenant of love. We're under a covenant of, of God loving his bride, right? Well, I'm not going to share with you what we talked about at that point. I, I, I answered him at that point. But that thought process began to plague me all week. Not plague me in a way that there wasn't an answer for it, but it plagued me in a way that, is that a true representation of the church? If that's a true representation of the church, no wonder Satan can manipulate like he does. And, and I know that's a, that's a difficult word, maybe not for us to receive here, but that will be a difficult word for the church to receive. Because, see, especially big churches, and, and trust me, I've wrestled with God on this one, because he's shown me so many big churches that we will deliver that word to, to then draw a line in the sand that God does to hold accountable, and yet will not only 
be mocked, we'll be laughed at, we'll be ridiculed, we'll be hated by the people that are supposed to be our brothers and sisters. But it's for the very same reason as to why this young man had the response he did. You know, and, and, and his answers, and, and he will probably see this, so, uh, I love him. I love him desperately. But understand that when you have discussions about the Word of God, it needs to be the Word of God. It can't be where you received some training. Like if, if you go to some big church, you can't say, well, at church they teach. Or at church they believe. You know, one of the things that, that was a, uh, uh, I can't remember when it was. This was when I was at Life, maybe the fourth or fifth year that I had been there. And, and for those of you that are familiar with Life, um, we did a banner each year for what that year represented, almost like a theme, right? And, and this one hit me so hard because I believed it, but yet in being held accountable to it, was I really where God wanted me to be with it? And that is, know what you believe and know where you find it in the Word of God. See, oftentimes Christians know what they believe. Yeah, well, yeah, I believe this, I believe that, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Right? I, I believe in the gifts. I believe, and maybe because they've seen them. But if you sit down with somebody, and you can't open the Word of God and say, it's not my words, it's His. It's what the Lord said. Then understand there's no power in your words. In the song that we sang that last phrase of, it said, I will declare your very word. Not, I will declare my word and hopefully it'll be like yours. Or I will declare what I think your word is because I kind of learned it at this school or, or I learned it at this church and, and it works for them because, you know, I mean, there are thousands and thousands of people. So, so yeah, so I, I declare the very word that I was taught through somebody else. That's not what it says. It says, I will declare your very word. You have to know his word if you're, de- if you're gonna declare his word. It doesn't say that there is power in declaring what you think His Word is. There's power in declaring His Word. There's power in declaring, because that's the Word that does not return void. Not our Word. It's His Word that will not return void. So I got to thinking about this this just throughout the week, and and... And you know how, how I wrestle with the Lord on what He wants me to speak on, and, and, and he, he never really gave me an indication that this is what He would want to speak on, but He didn't let it go in me. Because I think it's so prevalent in the church, and, and, and I didn't know until, until just this morning and really late last night probably that, that this was what He was going to focus on. Because the church needs to get it. Those online, they need to get it. We have to get it as a church that it's got to be about His words. We've got to be able to go back to the Word and say, wait a second, this is my foundation of belief. This is why I say what I say. This is why I believe what I believe. 
and to just believe that nothing negative happens in a person's life, let alone death. It, it just that that doesn't happen because we serve a good God. Do you understand that by saying that, you're placing what you think is good on Him? See, He knows the begin, for the end from the beginning. He knows everything that will happen, that has happened, and that every thought we've ever had. We don't. And His goals are different than ours. See, we've said this before. His goal isn't, and forgive me, church, because, and I, I know this isn't, this isn't us here, and so many times I'm preaching to the choir, but, but forgive me overall, church, for saying this, but God did not promise you a good life. He did not promise you wealth. He did not promise you everything to go easy. He did not promise you even perfect healing in this life. Well, I know there I stepped on a bunch of toes. Because see, that's a prevalent thing nowadays. Well, he, he guaranteed me, he promised me perfect healing in this life. Well, if that's the case, then he needs to go and apologize to Job. He needs to go and apologize to the Apostle Paul. He needs to go and apologize to 11, well, 10 actually, I suppose, because Junus kind of took his own life, but 10 of those that were killed, of the original disciples that were killed for the gospel. The only one that wasn't was John. See, if God is here to promise for this life everything to be good, He owes them an apology. He owes 60 million apologies to those babies that never even got the taste of life because they were aborted. So do you understand that, that God's perspective is different than ours? Because He looks at this life as preparation. He looks at this life as training. Because we're not born into relationship with Him and then, boom, I've got this awesome relationship with God now. It's been 20 minutes. I know Him. He knows me. We're all good. It doesn't work that way. See, we spend a lifetime, a lifetime learning who He is. A lifetime building relationship with Him. And it's all for the purpose of that life when we are with Him face to face. 1 Corinthians 13, when the perfect comes. When Jesus Christ, who is the perfect, the only perfect human being that's ever lived. When He comes, because He is God, the perfect comes. Then we'll see Him face to face. Then we'll be with him in his kingdom. There's another confusion. Says that so much is taught out, uh, taught out there about bringing the kingdom of God here. Which that in part is true. And in part brings confusion. Because Jesus Christ's kingdom does not come until he takes the throne of David. That is a physical thing. 
That is after His second coming. When He physically takes the throne of David that has been promised Him. By the way, that's why David said that one of your offspring will have the throne for eternity. See, you've got to realize that that's in the physical realm, but it needed a person who would live forever that could do that. That was a prophecy of Jesus Christ literally coming in the flesh. But His kingdom will not be here until He comes. Are we to ask for it? Yes. Father, we want Jesus' kingdom to be here on earth. Those requests are not just set aside and, well, yeah, I know you do. You've asked that now a hundred times. No, each time he listens. And each time they're built up. And it's building this foundation to where when the timing is right, God says, go. See, Jesus does not decide when he goes. There's another hard truth. I know I grew up thinking, well, yeah, I know when Jesus was alive as a man, he didn't know when his second coming was. But, but as soon as he died on the cross, rose from the grave and went up to the Father, the Father just kind of told him everything. I've since learned how incorrect that is. Because you understand he could not continue to represent man if he did not understand man's frailties. He could not fight for man before the throne in the court if he did not come from a placement of the same place we are. Now, I'm not saying that he's limited in what he knows. But the scripture is clear. He doesn't know when he's coming again because only the Father knows that. And he said the Father will reveal that at the time. Now, why? 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 Why didn't Jesus get to know that? I have a theory. And, and I think it's a pretty sound theory. It's because whatever comes out of the Father's mouth, the enemy has a right to know. That's a scary thought. Why is that? Because he's the judge. When a judge makes a proclamation here on earth, the defense and the prosecution both have a right to it. So you understand that that judge is impartial. That judge judges according to the law, not according to his feelings. So if he were to declare that very thing, the enemy would know and could prepare. But because of that, he, is un- he, he cannot prepare. So he actually continues to prepare all the time. You know, we talk about the Antichrist. Do you, do you understand that you can't just blip and... You see, Satan's not creative. Satan cannot create... Oh, 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 I got seven years. Okay, let me create an Antichrist. No, see, Satan has had to be working on that individual from the beginning. So Satan continually prepares situations that if that is the timing of it, then that person will fit right into the slot. What do you think Adolf Hitler was? See, he fit the mold. He fit the perfect mold. But it wasn't time yet. 
You will have these pop up in history all the time. Why? Because Satan's ready for that. He knows it's coming, just as we know his kingdom's coming. So it's a travesty for people to say that we can pray God's kingdom or or Jesus' kingdom here on earth and have it now. Why? Because in his kingdom, all those things are promised. See, it's promised that there, there will, there will be the, the lion laying down with the lamb. And not after it, just ate it. <laughs> right? That, that it says children can play in the hole of a cobra and not be hurt. Or den of a cobra. See, those things are promised for that earthly reign of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm pretty sure that if you go climb into a cobra's nest, you're going to have a problem. Right? Even though we could stomp on snakes and scorpions, okay, you may not want to try that. Although if you do and you kill the cobra, I really want the skin. I really want that. (laughs) But do you see that there are different kingdoms? See, there's also the kingdom of God. And there is also the kingdom of heaven. See, most churches mix these things up. The kingdom of God is where God's throne is. It is effectively what will be called the new Jerusalem after the thousand year reign. When God descends to the earth, he descends in what is now his throne room. That becomes the new Jerusalem because he said it's time. It's time for God to dwell with man. That now, by the way, that's not till the. I mean, go to the very end of the book. Right? I want to say that's uh, Revelation chapter twenty, twenty-one, somewhere right in there. That happens after everything else happens. So that that's the kingdom of God. Now, some people have been brought to the kingdom of God, even in this life, which is extraordinary. I mean, the whole book of Revelation was John being taken up to the kingdom of God. He was taken up to the third heaven and was shown all these things that would happen. Paul was the same way. Paul, in his training, in the 14 years of training, after the Damascus Road, uh, that experience when he, he was saved, he went into this training process for 14 years. And we think three and a half years is tough. Right? He went into this training process for 14 years. And during that time, he said, I know a man. And looking at it, you know that's him because he he reveals that. But he said, I know a man, whether in the flesh or out of the flesh, I can't even tell you. He said, but he was taken to the third heaven and saw things he wasn't even allowed to write down. So see... We have had people taken to God's kingdom and then come back. That, that's, that's not a stretch. I mean, you hear, you hear people even today like Kat Kerr, that when you hear her for the first time and you're like, okay, <laughs> this lady's a whack job. Then you open the word and say, oh, wow, okay, God really does do that. Now, I'm not saying everything she's saying is correct. I'm not endorsing anything. I don't know her, never met her. I could tell you that I could 
can concur with some things she said. But you have these times where, where people are taken to God's throne. I've shared with you my experience when he took me to his throne. And I won't, I won't bother sharing that again, but that happens. That's God's kingdom. Then you have the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is really a different realm than what we operate in. And I've, I don't want to go too far down this road because we've talked about it a thousand times. The real reality. See, we look in a three-dimensional world plus time. And, and we see that as reality. When in reality, it is limited reality. Because just as Elisha prayed for his his scribe to have his eyes opened, if, if we were to say, okay, Lord, open all of our eyes right now, we would look around and we would see something very different than what we see. Right? You'd see warring angels surrounding this place right now. You'd see ministering angels helping work downstairs right now. And then you'd see a whole band of witches out in the perimeter that can't get in. Right? You would start to see things that you don't see in the natural. That is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is beyond our time here, beyond our understanding of what's here. So what's it say in Matthew 6.33? Seek ye first. Anybody know it? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right? So what we are seeking is God in his kingdom. What we are seeking is the eventual bringing of God's kingdom to this earth. Because ultimately, that is the final thing in the word of God. I, I, it, it's kind of the final chapter. I think of it as the first chapter because I, I just can't wait to see what God has after that. Because he's so creative. Imagine what's going to happen then. It's going to be extraordinary. But we're to pray for that. We can engage in that here. That's why he said, not just his kingdom, but his righteousness. We're to seek his righteousness. What does that mean? Well, uh, 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 wait a second. We're sinful flesh. Yes, we are. doesn't stop us from seeking his righteousness. I want you to turn... I want you to turn to Luke chapter 9, because this, this was talked about, I think it was Tuesday night, or it might have been previous Tuesday night, can't remember. But, but Michael had referred to this a few times, and I, I just wanted to read through this because so often we think it's, not a big deal to follow Jesus. And, and I want to lay out a difference between salvation, accepting Him into your heart as Savior, versus a relationship with Him. And I've, I've shared this before, but let's go to the Word. Verse 57 of chapter 9 says this, 
as they were going along the road, someone said to him, to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Verse 59, to another he said, follow me. But then that person said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus' reply to him may seem harsh, but truth often is. Leave the Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And this last verse is the one that drives the knife deep. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit For the kingdom of heaven. That word fit there. In the Greek. I just looked it up. It's euthetos. But it it means well placed. No one who will look back. When they have a job to do. They're moving forward. In their job with Jesus Christ. Whatever he is placed them in on that path. No one who looks back to a different path is fit or well-placed to be his disciple. See, what is a disciple? A disciple is somebody who is obedient. We know in John 15. It's, it's not just that they are his servants. He's not saying that that if you look back and not just moving forward, if you look back or look at other things that I have that that you want for yourself instead of what Jesus wants for you, if you look back, you are not fit to be saved. It's not what it says. You're not fit to be my disciple. See, there were many who loved Jesus, who believed he was the Messiah, but yet were not his disciples. Now, by the way, I'm talking about more than the 12. Because we know at Pentecost there were 120 disciples. Now the 12 became apostles. But to be a disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ where you lay everything down. He said to his His twelve disciples, you have gone from being a servant to being my friend. See, that shows the progression of relationship. It begins with obedience. It begins with saying, yes, Lord, whatever you want. And Jesus says, okay. He takes your shoulders. He points you in a direction. And he says, step. Don't worry, I'm here with you. Step. But Lord, I, I don't see any. I'm, I'm walking literally into blackness. I can't see anything. I can't see the road. I can't see. I can't even see if I'm stepping on anything solid. He says, it's okay. I got you. Put on your armor. Put on your shoes of peace. The, the shoes are there literally to trust him with. And he, he just holds your shoulders and he walks like this with you. And what he says is, as you build relationship with me, as you build that trust in who he is, you don't have to do this anymore. Are you back there? 
You back there, Lord? You, you still back there? That's the power of relationship. That as I step, I know He's back there. Why? Because He promised to be. And therefore, I can step and not look back. See, that's the ground-based criteria for being a follower of Jesus Christ, for building a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why he said the trappings of this world are difficult. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. What does that mean? It means that the world is going to make you want to look to the right or the left, or to look back. The world's going to make you want to pay attention to other things. And by the way, not just the world, but the church. See, a church that tells you, you have a right, it is promised, to receive perfect healing right now. Well, there's a tough thing about that. Because if that's the case, then there has to be explanation why it doesn't happen. We pray for Carson all the time. Without stop. Without fail. We pray for Carson all the time. So if, if that, if that healing is promised, okay, in this life, which by the way, with Carson it is, because Jesus set that aside separately. Right? We get prophecies of what he tells us that's going to happen. We live that by faith. However, however, what if it never happened? Does that negate God's will for Carson? No. See, Carson's walking in God's will right now. And I would dare say that, that we have no idea the victories that are being accomplished because he walks in God's will even with the pain. Now that also doesn't mean that we can't have healing here. Man, we go back to the word on this. What did Jesus say? I, I, I want to say it was Jesus said in John chapter 20 or somewhere around there that he said, he said, all these miracles that I have done. He said, when I go to the Father, trust me, you want me to because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and you're going to do more than I did. Whose benefit do you think he was talking about when he said that? The disciples? Well, again, if it was for the disciples who became the apostles, he owes them an apology because it never happened. It never happened. All throughout the word of God, from Jesus on, we never saw more than what Jesus did. So see, that is held even for another time. See, that gives us hope. You look back and you say, well, that's never happened. God promised it to happen. So it gives us hope in what he is going to do. And faith is all tied in with that. Faith is, is literally the, the, the grease that makes it all operate. The gas that makes it all function. But this idea that 
we're under a different covenant now. I, I, I want to I deal with, we're not going to deal with it all today. Which means I'll know what we're talking about next week. That's awesome. But I want to deal with, with this idea of what this new covenant is. Because your Bible talks about it. First of all, understand what the old covenant was. Okay, the old covenant was the law given to Moses for the children of Israel. And back then, the, the covenant was given to the world, to his chosen people. So a Gentile who had to, who wanted to believe in, in a coming Messiah had to then adhere to that same law. They had to literally become in their faith Jewish. They had to adhere to the, the sacrifice and everything else. And, and without getting too much into the Old Covenant, the, the Bible talks about that the Old Covenant was, was given to literally bring death. Uh, see, that's kind of harsh when you think about it. And, and Paul said in, in Hebrews, he said, that, or it might have been Romans, he said that, that prior to the law being given to Moses, they weren't held accountable. Now I can't tell you, I, I, I know what that means, because that, that racks my brain quite a bit. That they were not held accountable because the law had not been given. Why did God bring the law to literally bring the accountability? The accountability of death. And so you had to adhere in this old covenant, you had to adhere to the law, to the sacrifices, to build that relationship. To believe in a coming Messiah was before Jesus came, no different than now believing in a Messiah that came. However, to live a sanctified life, you had to live according to the law. That was the old covenant. Jesus came, and the reason the Old Covenant was there was to set a precedence that nobody could do. That's what Paul said. Nobody could do it. Nobody could even come close to being sinless. That's why Jesus Christ had to come. So the law was given literally to propel the coming of Jesus Christ. When he inserted himself into his own creation, and became a man and died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave and now sits at the right hand of the Father. So so that old covenant was then made into a new covenant in Jesus Christ. A covenant of His blood. His, we, we sing the songs washed in the blood and, and how the blood covers my sin and everything. That is the new covenant. Because it is His blood that washes our sin away. But I want to talk about what this, this new covenant means because it, it struck me when this young man told me, well, well, no, it, God, there's no more negative in God because we're under a new covenant. This covenant of grace and, and God wants good and everything's flowers and awesomeness. Like that's a movie, right? Everything is awesome. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, it's what happens when you have a little kid. However, Again, if, if that's the case, God has a lot of people he's got to apologize to. 
because, see, they never received that even though they gave him everything. So let, let's, let's look at, first of all, before, before we, we're, we're gonna dive into Hebrews 8 here for just a minute, but, but before we do, I want you to understand one of the mysteries, cause this, this is what has to do with most of us here. One of the mysteries of this new covenant that, that Paul was able to give out, we find in Ephesians 3. I want you to turn to Ephesians 3. And Ephesians 3, Paul talks about a mystery. We're going to start at, chat, at verse number 4 and go down through 10. Paul talks about a mystery that was unknown in the generations beating, leading up to this. But he says, starting in verse 4, <clears throat> When you read this, you could perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ. Now, now remember, before Jesus was Jesus, he was still the Christ. The Christ is a title. The Christ is the Messiah. The Christ is the Son of God, right? Jesus is a human name. Christ is not his last name. Jesus Christ, right? It's really Jesus the Christ. Verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. The mystery is this. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. We're co-heirs with those chosen by God, with Israel that is, is God's people. Members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Let me point something out here because this is a dangerous place. Okay, there is a theology out there called replacement theology that is absolutely satanic. That the Gentiles replaced Israel. That is absolutely false. One thing you have to separate out here, again, this idea of reality, our reality versus God's reality. See, there were many things promised God's people. God's people were promised land, of which they, they did obtain, and then they lost it, and, and they went back and they lost it again, and, and, and they've been out and they went back in 1948. Okay, these promises, it doesn't mean that all Christians now get all of Israel's land. Okay, that's not what this means. This is talking about relationship. This, if, if you look at the first seven chapters of, of Hebrews, it goes into um, an explanation of what the tabernacle was like and how it was, it was, it was an imprint, imprint of what was in heaven, of the true reality that was in heaven. And so when the, the, the priest, the high priest would go in for the sin offering once a year, he would go in and it was an example of what needed to happen in heaven, but hadn't. Why? Because it needed a perfect sacrifice to happen in heaven. So when Jesus, and this is what Paul, or, well, the writer of Hebrews, I believe it was Paul, but the, the writer of Hebrews says, literally when Jesus died on the cross, 
and ascended into heaven. But the moment he died on the cross, that sacrifice made obsolete. Understand that. Made obsolete the very temple and the very tabernacle that was on earth. That's why the veil tore. The veil that was between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, it it tore from the top down. Because what happened in heaven was a perfect sacrifice from the human race. It was Jesus who offered Himself. And that perfect sacrifice opened up an avenue. An avenue that allowed everybody, Gentiles and Jews alike, to have relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ. Let me just continue on because he makes some other statements here that I think are very interesting. Of this gospel, I was made a minister, uh, verse 7, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for all for ages in God who created all things so that through the church okay through the bride literally those who accept Jesus Christ into their heart from the moment he was on the earth until the moment he returns so that through that church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to who To people? It's not what it says. It says, to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Literally, literally what was going on here was God saying that to the, to the darkness, to Satan and his cohorts, this is happening. And this is a new covenant that you cannot touch. And he was saying that to Satan. That's who was being made aware. I, I just find that amazing. Okay, go to Hebrews chapter 8. I'm only going to get the, into this for just a short span here. But I want you to understand this, this idea of this new covenant. Because, again, so much of the church... The bride places an aspect of grace into every piece of it. And they place it incorrectly. And, and it's unfortunate because they use it as a license to do things. And I'm not even talking about sin, guys. I, sin's obvious. You know, well, I live in grace so I could go, you know, shoot up. Okay, we all know that doesn't make sense, right? I live in grace, so it's not a sin for me to to look at pornography anymore. Okay, we know. That one's obvious. But here's one that's not. Well, we live in grace, so we can treat church like a business. And and we can we can have a good marketing plan. In, In fact, you know what? What we'll do, we'll hire this company that have nothing to do with God, come in and teach us how to market properly. 
so we can get more people and get a bigger building and have more that we can outreach with and all this stuff. See, that one's a little easier to hide because you could put the label on that that, well, no, we just want people to be saved. You know what? If you just want people to be saved, you don't need a building. You just need a mouth. You just need a willingness to step with the Lord holding your shoulders and not worry about where, where you're stepping. Every one of us in here knows somebody who does not know the Lord. Do, do you use your mouth? See, this will never be a church. This will never be a church. Please, Lord, as long as I'm alive, this will never be a church that is going to rely on some marketing scheme to raise money. You know, if, if it, we were faced a couple of years ago with, with a need to build a, a huge parking lot in order to really grow, that required faith. Especially since the cost of that parking lot was going to be more than our annual budget. And there were several of us that said, okay, let's do it. See, we don't handle the checkbook anyways. Why are we trying to take it back? Now, I'm not saying be stupid. I'm saying listen to the Lord. Be stupid if the Lord wants you to be stupid. <laughs> and, and I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek because the world will think you're stupid. If the Lord tells you to close down your business when you still have six grand a month in, in bills, close down your business, sell all your equipment so there's no way you could pay your bills. <laughs> That's kind of stupid. Right? But sometimes, from the world's perspective, it's going to look stupid what we do. You know, I think of Paul, who, who every city he went into, he was shown what was going to happen to him there. Talk about discouraging. It's like, it's like God, can we skip this one? <laughs> this one's going to be tough. Can we, I mean, I've already had two shipwrecks. Seriously, do I need a, do I need a third? Right? But the, the thing is, Paul never saw himself as an end game. He saw himself as just stepping in whatever the Lord wanted him to step in and trusting and opening his mouth. We're no different. We're no different. That's all he wants. It is literally what prepares us for his kingdom. And that's what we want to be a part of. This new covenant, I, I do want to share though, because this new covenant is grace. It isn't still the law where, I mean, and, and that's, that's how many of us have grew up. You know, well, we, we accept Jesus Christ as Savior, and then we just live according to the law. That's what legalism does. And, and by the way, that's not a bad thing. Ooh, that actually came out of my mouth. That's not a bad thing. That's actually not legalism. To live by the statutes of the word of God. That's not legalism. What's legalism is when I judge you for the same thing. 
when I judge you according to what God is placing in my heart. Why? Because that's control, guys. See, Jesus said, I'm the shepherd. Not that I have a whole bunch of little shepherds that get to control. And you can choose to be a shepherd too. All you got to do is control. That's really what the church does. See, when we start to give the control to Him, man, church looks different. Because I'll tell you what, you guys cannot come to me and blame me because of your own walk with Christ. Why? Because I didn't lay it out there from me. That's between you and the Lord. That's what relationship is. But understand the grace that is in the new covenant is all throughout that. His grace is the very opportunity to accept him as savior. When we accepted the justification of our life, where he pours over us his blood and we're, we're covered in his blood. That's what the Bible calls justification. When we say, Jesus, I believe who you are, who you were, what you did. I believe it. I ask you into my heart. I, I, I literally pronounce that out of my mouth, not for other people's sake, but for the enemy's sake, right? I, I, with, with the mouth, confession is made, right? So, so in doing that, that is 100% grace. You didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't do anything to, to deserve it. You received it. And received his grace. And his grace doesn't stop there. His grace is every Sunday morning when I don't know what he wants to speak through me. I just literally prepare my life every day and live a life just hungry for him. And grace is me stepping up to this podium and him filling my mouth. Right? Grace is when you walk into a job that you hate. Because you know God's got something different for you. But yet, you know you're supposed to be there right then. Grace is the thing he gives you to step into it and be him to them. That's grace. Grace is the opportunity to build relationship with him in the first place. That's grace. That's his love. That's him saying yes. Grace is not where we intermix our own will with it. See, grace also can be messy. You know, do you think that that when Paul would go into these cities and have to deal with the things he dealt with, do you think he didn't have grace in his life? Is that why he had to deal with those things? Maybe he, maybe he didn't, like, claim it. Well, it was there, but I never claimed it. I never claimed that million dollars that I'm supposed to have, and that's why I don't have it. Right? See, it's not that at all. The grace is the opportunity for relationship with him. The grace is the opportunity that that young lady has downstairs right now. 
And I know most of you don't know what's going on, but it's okay. See, grace is really an invitation. It's God sending us an invitation saying, I want to spend time with you. And then we fall under this new covenant, this new covenant of his blood, which the thing that changed there was the intermediary. That's what, that's what the writer of Hebrews explains in the first seven chapters, and specifically in chapter seven. He said, Jesus became our high priest. We don't have to go through another human being like they did before. A, a human being that's flawed, by the way. Because even the, the high priest back then was flawed. In, in fact, if, if he went in that once a year to give the offering for sin, and, and he was not already taking care of, of his own sin, then he didn't last long in there. That's why they would tie bells to him and tie a rope to his ankle. Because if they didn't hear the bells still going off, they'd just yank him out because he's dead. See, we have the grace to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, who sits at the right hand of the Father. I've, I've been to the... To, to the court so many times and in, 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 in with other people. And it's been interesting to me to be able to see and hear and understand the relationship between Jesus and the Father. And, and how the Father will literally ask, and I'm, he obviously does it for our sake, because the Father knows, but he will ask Jesus, the state of our relationship with him. It's extraordinary to me. Absolutely extraordinary to me. That's the new covenant. The new covenant does not get rid of following in obedience. Now, it did get rid of some things, right? And, and we can we could read down here. Um, you know what? I'm not even going to get... Well, let's read down at the bottom. Um well, here, first, let, let's start at verse 6, because I'm literally going to be done in five minutes, hopefully. <laughs> but we will continue next week. But as it is, verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. In fact, that first, first covenant was put in place to bring fault, to expose fault, to expose a need. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Why? They couldn't. They couldn't stay sinless. That's why Jesus had to come. To literally complete the requirements of the law, the requirements of that covenant, so he could be the mediator of a new covenant through his blood. It's important that we understand this. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. Now keep in mind, this covenant that he's talking about right here also includes Gentiles. We just read that in Ephesians 3. But do not confuse this with the covenant of the land, the promises of the land, the promises of, of, of literally Jesus taking the throne of David and leading in a very physical sense the children of Israel. He will be the king of Israel. That will happen. That's what the thousand year reign is all about. That is a physical reign where Israel will be the globally dominant power. Because Jesus Christ will be on its throne. By the way, it will not be the only nation. We know that because the nations will literally come to Jerusalem to pay homage to Jesus Christ. But but it will be the globally dominant power. Israel will be. And the seat of it will be Jerusalem where Jesus Christ will take the throne of David. This is not negating those promises. Okay, I want to make that very clear. This is talking about the promise of eternal life. Uh, behold, verse 10. Okay, for this, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, days declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. Here is your first clue that this is not right now. This has not happened yet. Right now we need to tell each other. We need to tell each other about Jesus Christ. This is a foreshadowing of what is to come when Jesus rules Israel physically on this earth. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Wait a second, Greg, you, you just said it wasn't obsolete. I even used that word, Right? Okay, you got to keep reading here. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. See, what God is stating here is an end goal. If, if you, it's extraordinary to, to really study what God is going to do in the thousand year reign and what that means for the children of Israel. And you, you really want to get confused. Read, read the book of Ezekiel. And recognize that they're actually going to go back to doing sacrifices. PETA is going to be upset. (laughs) Right? Okay, so this has nothing to do, I want to say it again, has nothing to do with those promises that he has given over Israel because those will take place. In fact, it it will be a thousand years of peace, of awesomeness. Everything is awesome. Right? It will really happen then. They might speak it in Jewish, I, uh, in Hebrew, I don't know. But, uh, but understand that this promise at the, at the end, this, this covenant that, that 
has a plan to become obsolete is when that is fulfilled completely, not just by Jesus Christ, but by all those who follow Him as well. Because that one will not be obsolete until that happens, until Jesus Christ comes back again. So we're going to get into next week, what does it mean then, if I am under this new covenant, this new covenant of grace, What does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? What does it mean, if if the law is not yet obsolete, then what part of that am I held accountable to? We're going to get into that next week. Let's bow our heads. Father, we worship you, we praise you. We thank you, Lord, for who you are. We declare your goodness. We declare your graciousness. We declare, Father, that we understand that through the precious grace given through your Son's blood, we have opportunity for relationship with you. But God, over the course of today and next week, and however long if this becomes a series, whatever you do with it, Father, help us to understand what it means to truly grow that relationship. The accountability for our own lives, but the accountability then for your bride. Because Lord, you you have just more and more and more, you have placed in my heart that lukewarm will be no longer. That you, as I've said, are drawing a line in the sand and and, and you're saying, choose hot, choose cold. Lukewarm doesn't work anymore. And you're saying that to your bride. So Father, in, in order to be able to be hot, we have to understand what this means to have relationship and, and understand that, that, that the, the old covenant, this law, is not obsolete in our lives but that you give grace because Jesus Christ did it he lived a sinless life you give grace for us to literally have the same victories in our own life Lord help us to get that we love you so much we thank you we praise you in Jesus name Amen. Okay. And you you could stop that there.